You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 1st of February. And on the show today, we looked at the row between the Saudi Arabian ambassador to the United States and tennis stars Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova. Now, Princess Rima bint Banda accuses the pair of failing to keep up with the pace of change in the kingdom. We discussed that story with Egyptian tennis commentator Reem Aboué. Meanwhile, a UAE-based company has created an AI program that's actually being used to translate tennis players' press conferences at the Australian Open. It's very clever, though. It actually translates in the player's own voice. The father and son behind the company, Cam.ai, explained how it works. Meanwhile, as many as 50% of wild camel deaths could be caused by plastic rubbish. We found out why it's so dangerous with Dr. Arsan Ulhaq Khan. He's from the Dubai Camel Hospital, where he's a vet. Meanwhile, the Apple Vision Pro goes on sale on Friday. So will it change the way we live and work in much the way the iPhone did back in 2007? Well, we discussed that with two virtual reality experts, Dr. Samir Kishor from Middlesex University, Dubai, and also Dr. Paul Tennant. He's from the University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom. And we also got into another sort of text space story with the presenter of the reboot show, Sonal Rapani. She gave us a little bit of a preview of her upcoming weekend show, talking us through mining asteroids. Meanwhile, Chris McCarty also brought us up to date with all the latest sporting headlines. Hey there, welcome back to the show. Uh, Lovely to have you with us this Thursday morning. And interesting topic we're going to talk about over the next 15 minutes or so, because we're all pretty well versed in the various rows that the sporting world has with Saudi Arabia. There was the live golf row um, with Saudi Arabia being accused of using uh, golf and other sports to sort of create a new impression of life in the kingdom. Well, now tennis is coming under the spotlight after two legends suggested that hosting the WTA finals in Saudi Arabia would be, and this is their words, not mine, a step backwards for women's tennis. Now, um, you might remember that WTA came really close to hosting their 2023 finals in Saudi, but in the end it went to Cancun in Mexico. But they are still considering moving their season-ending event to Riyadh for future tournaments. So it's definitely not off, off the table. But it's sort of not like fully on the table either, which is what makes this op-ed sort of slightly strangely timed. Um, Essentially, it's an opinion piece. They wrote it it for the Washington Post and it was Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova. And they said that if it was held uh, in Riyadh, it would represent not progress, but significant regression for the sport. Now, that might have sort of died out had Saudi Arabia not come back fighting uh, and in style. Um, the, basically, the tennis stars' views have been really strongly refuted in um, a statement that was published on X or Twitter by Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the US, who is Princess Rima bint Banda. Now, she's accused those two former tennis stars of failing to keep up with the pace of change in the kingdom. And, and again, I quote, denying our women the same opportunities of others. And indeed, 
Other people have come out talking about this. In fact, speaking on the Saudi podcast, The Mo Show, just recently, Yara Al-Hogmani, who is Saudi Arabia's very first professional female tennis player, explained why the exposure to the game is actually critical for the next generation of stars in her country. I don't really think there's any cultural challenges that I face. I think other than tennis not being like a huge sport here, being in the States at first and being around like the tennis community and the tennis atmosphere helped a lot. Mm. And I think that's where I thought it was like normal. And when I came here and it wasn't normal, I like tried to make it normal. I think the Diria Tennis Cup was huge. Bringing the top 10 players or top 20 players, that was incredible. Giving local players a chance to play in front of these people, like people that look like them, people that talk like them. It's like, hey, he's from Saudi. He plays tennis. I can play tennis. Now, I think lots of people might not realise they, they even have a professional female tennis player in Saudi Arabia. And that sort of gives you a sense of how many of us might not really know what's going on in Saudi Arabia, because understandably, you don't necessarily read the Saudi press every single day. Um, so we wanted to find out a little bit more about this topic and whether or not these two tennis stars, Evert and Navratilova, have a leg to stand on when it comes to their op-ed. So we caught up with Reem Aboué. Now, she is an experienced Egyptian sports journalist. She's also presenter of a new podcast called Abtal. And she said that Navratilova and Evert's response was typical of the West. I wasn't really surprised because the arguments that they made, Arsene Martina and the op-ed piece, have been repeated over and over again over several years in general without actually updating their views because they just think the world doesn't change. The Western world is always fed a certain narrative. And unless people actually go and see for themselves, which is something I have done, I went to Saudi Arabia in December and attended the first ever sanctioned tennis tournament there. And I saw with my own eyes before judging anything, really. And tennis in general is very Europe-centric and America-centric, which is a sport that doesn't go too often outside of those two regions. If you look at the number of athletes from Europe and America, these are the ones that dominate the sport. Yes, there's some Australians, there's this and that. We obviously have Uns Jabir from Tunisia. She was the first Arab ever to break through in that way. So it's a very insular kind of sport, and it's not easy for people inside the tennis bubble to kind of see views that are outside of it. I obviously wish that tennis was a little bit different. This is a sport I have dedicated the past 14 years to. I travel the tour full-time. I remain to be the only Arab full-time tennis writer traveling the tour after all these years. I would love to see it in a different light, but I definitely hear a lot of these tired narratives sometimes. Some of the stuff is valid, a lot of it is not. A lot of it can be challenged and they should be open to see people who want to change and say, why not go and see with our own eyes? So one of the arguments I think that is often put forward is that there are certain women who have certain freedoms. And if you go to tennis matches, those women have been afforded extra freedoms, you know, when it comes to dress or when it comes to travel, that other women, normal women, don't have. And obviously, there's been lots of talk about grassroots sport and, and, and accessing, you know, young women who are growing up in Saudi, young girls who are growing up in Saudi. Do you think that that, that is happening as well? Do you think that we are genuinely seeing a grassroots movement? So I interviewed Arij, who is the president of 
the Saudi Tennis Federation. She is a woman. So first of all, I found it a bit strange that the op-ed is putting a blanket kind of judgment that women have no role in society when actually the president of the Times Federation is a woman and not just any woman, a formidable woman. If you meet Arij, who is fluent in multiple languages, like switches between Italian, Arabic and English, like on the fly, amazing woman. I saw her at Wimbledon for the first time and then I met her again in Saudi Arabia last December. And I asked her, what are the grassroots initiatives? Every program they have is dedicated to girls and boys equally. It's a mandate coming from the government. She told me that the government now, anyway, everything has to be equal pay, equal attention. So actually, when Jeddah bid for the next gen ATP finals, which is a men's event, it's a season finale dedicated to athletes age 22 and under, they wanted a women's one as well because they didn't want to just have the young men playing. They wanted women as well, but actually the WTA did not cooperate. I think that Arij and her team and the Federation and the country in general is very well aware, especially Arij, that you can't flip a switch and suddenly have a tennis culture. That doesn't exist. I've seen it with my own eyes. I mean, the country we're in right now, the UAE, has been hosting top tennis since the early 90s. But actually, there aren't that many tennis players homegrown in the UAE, but there's a passion for the sport. So there's multiple things that need to fall into place to actually see people take it seriously. But from what I saw with my own eyes when I went to the next-gen ATP finals in Jeddah, the semis and finals, it was a full house. And there were men, women, kids, grown-ups. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. The first days, there was no traction, which is normal. It's a new event. But semis and finals was good. So they're trying. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes time. We've seen similar arguments raised with all the sports, to be honest. We had it with Qatar and the World Cup. We've had it with Saudi and golf. And obviously Saudi also hiring lots of the world's top football stars as well. Do you think there is just a bias from Western nations that they kind of feel they own the sport? A hundred percent. I'll tell you why. I have an example that came to my mind. Wimbledon only started awarding equal prize money as recently as 2007. Okay. The US Open did that in 1973. So imagine one of the big four Grand Slams starts giving equal prize money in 1973, thanks to Billie Jean King and everyone with her who fought for that at the time. 34 years later, Wimbledon decided that the men deserved equal prize money. Did people boycott Wimbledon? Were people not playing Wimbledon in the 90s? Were people saying, oh my God, this is unfair? No. They acknowledged it's a problem and they kept fighting for it. And ultimately, Venus Williams led kind of the conversation at the time. And she had the leverage and they, they did it. But it took them until 2007. So what I'm going to say is no one is perfect. There is no way. A lot of what is being said is valid. That doesn't mean you have ownership of the sport. No single continent or country or nationality should have ownership of the sport. I mean, Egyptians dominate squash. Do we own the sport? No. You know what I mean? No. Like, we don't have claims for it. Do we go and change rules or do this or that? No. Do we say, no, we're not going to go there and this and that? It's... Uh, such a close-minded thing, thinking that tennis is above everybody. That's what kind of makes tennis inaccessible. That's why tennis is sometimes still seen as stuffy. But like Billie Jean King herself said, I was in front of her in June in London, where they were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the foundation of the WTA. 
And I sat one-on-one -on -one with Billy. And Billy said, I would go to Saudi Arabia because nothing changes without dialogue. And I agree, she says, nothing changes without engagement. So Martina and Chrissy say in the op-ed that there hasn't been enough communication with the players themselves. That's actually not true. Because if you listen to Iga Svantec, the world number one in Australian Open, in her press conference just a couple of weeks ago, she said that communication has become so much better. We are in the loop. I'm not going to say anything until it's final, but we are in the loop. I have personally spoken to several players off the record and on the record, and they feel that they deserve to go somewhere where they will be valued and get earn the money that the men are being offered. Women's tennis deserves that. And... With all due respect, they already come to the Middle East. They've been to China, they've been to Russia, they've been everywhere. And yes, you see the change. With years, you see different things. So I don't think that the young girls in Saudi should be deprived of something because someone has a superiority complex. How about that? Nobody's sitting on any uh, fences or, or courts or anything with that argument. Really, really interesting to hear there from Reeb Abouay. She's an Egyptian sports journalist, also presenter of the new podcast, Abtol. I'd love to get uh, your view on that. Do you agree with her? Do you think things have changed in the kingdom? Uh, do you think that the Western world is proprietary about sport and doesn't like to see their big matches, their big events go to the Middle East. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there, welcome back to The Agenda. Lovely to have you listening. And I'm about to tell you about a very cool story indeed because a UAE-based company has created an AI program that's actually being used right now at the Australian Open to translate tennis players' press conferences. But what is so clever about this uh, tech from the company Cam.ai is that the computer-produced translations actually replicate the voices of the players. And I'm going to double-check this fact in a few minutes, but I think it also attempts to sync it with the movement of their lips. Here is, obviously we can't do the video, but here's, a, here's an audio version, a, a, a Djokovic demo, for example. Se podía apreciar que él tenía una estrategia clara y estaba muy enfocado. Por lo tanto, me resultó bastante complicado jugar bien en los primeros sets. En el tercero sentí que las cosas empezaban yeah, a tomar forma. I don't speak Spanish, so I, I don't know what he's saying. Um, but it really does sound like Djokovic, doesn't it? Um, what do you reckon about... Uh, what do you reckon about the tech? What do you reckon about how it sounds? It is receiving slightly mixed reviews. Some commentators described it as creeping them out, in inverted commas. But Tenants Australia is hoping the tech will enable them to build audiences and therefore revenue. Joining me now to explain how this cam.ai tech works are the father and son inventors. I got Avnish Prakash and Ak Prakash both in the studio with me. They are the founders of that UAE-based company cam.ai. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Well, thank you, Georgia, for having us on the show. Such a pleasure. It's yeah. really lovely. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Um, okay, let's get into it. Uh, first of all, Avnish, tell me how you came up with the technology. 
Well, uh, you know, we formed the, the company on a very, very simple premise. Uh, the internet was created for the English speakers, and we wanted to redesign it for the world. I mean, if you look at it, 80% of the digital content is in English, when less than 20% people speak that language. Now, you know, call it providence, call it our personal experience, or just destiny. Uh, my co-founder here, I met him like 26 years back, on the dot, right about the same time in a <laughs> <an> hospital birthday. <laughs> <You know. laughs> and uh, since then and we connected right we really connected i think the startup was born right there uh, you know little did i know that uh, akshat's uh, mimicry skills he would put that and blend it into technology and we would create a company out of it but you know more seriously what we experienced just growing up was really poor uh, poor quality dubbed content you know uh, you would walk into a horror movie uh, you know, hoping to be creeped out and he would come out laughing just because of the Mickey Mousey, you know, dubbing content. And we decided to change it for forever. So we 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 created our, our dubbing platform, which is powered by AI, and it gives a level of realism that has never been uh, achieved uh, ever in the past. So that's how we really came about it. And that's that's been our inspiration, our own personal experiences. Akshat brought in his years of experience in generative AI, his research experiences. And uh, we put that together, my own learnings from digital media. And we brought this together. I have to say, it's the most charming story. Now, like, I really love the fact that you're based here in the UAE, that you're a father and son partnership. Ak, uh, now you're, the, you're the AI guru. How... How does it actually work? What does it do? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, as uh, my father mentioned, I've been always a mimicry artist growing up. And little did I know that I would end up at Carnegie Mellon researching AI, one of the birthplaces for it. I spent a lot, a little over half a, half a decade now researching AI, speech, translation, and a lot of what we were researching and building towards was this goal of making uh, language universal. Um, and so, you know, I also, for a bit, we, you know, worked at Siri, uh, working on similar technology at the time. It was being led by really the AI gurus of the world. Um, and soon enough, you know, we, we realized that we could combine my research experience with the um, expertise with the rest of the team to build, um, so called this, this universal translator um, that can allow anybody to speak any language. Um, and so how the technology works is very revolutionary, very cutting edge, uh, very unlike how this problem has been tried to be solved before, uh, which has been mostly people trying to use a bunch of third-party APIs and trying to stitch something together, turn speech into text, to translate it, and then into speech. But at CAMBI, uh, we have invented um, two of our own models, Mars and Boli, that significantly push the boundaries of what has been done in the translation uh, and dubbing space. And uh, using these foundational models, we've been able to kind of create uh, this new tool that can take any speech and turn it into any language, whether you talk about something like a Swahili to Icelandic, Malayalam, Spanish. I mean, Djokovic in Spanish is just the tip of the iceberg. Tomorrow, you might be hearing him in 120 different languages using Cambi technology. I mean, when we spoke there about how you can actually hear Djokovic's voice and, and that's what the, the clever sort of twist that AI gives it rather than it being, I don't know, me dubbing, right. uh, you know, Djokovic's voice. Uh, was I right that you're going to get the visuals as well so that it looks like it syncs with his lips? 
Yeah, so we actually, uh, ironically, we actually started with that technology, but soon enough we realized that, uh, you know, that technology doesn't actually have a high adoptability with large businesses because while dubbing uh, and voiceover has existed for many decades, uh, it's, you know, a borderline creepy, as, <laughs> as one of the, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, persons mentioned, to be able to actually change lips. It is a capability that we do offer but not actively promote. And our focus is singularly getting translation nuances, dialects right, along with, uh, you know, the, the personalization of somebody speaking, yeah. uh, which, is their own, which is their own voice. And we can actually, I mean, uh, you know, press conferences and such are just the tip of the iceberg again, like I'm saying. But we can actually also do multi-speaker scenarios, scenarios where there's a lot of noise, filtering that out and keeping all that essence still. So, yeah. We may be starting with press conferences, but you know, soon enough there'll be live games uh, that you'll be able to see in any language in the world. How did you get the attention of the Australian Open? Because that must have been a real coup. Avnish, are you going to go for that yeah, one? Yeah, I think, um, uh, Georgia, uh, Australian Open is not just uh, the largest tennis tournament. Uh, they're also one of the most innovative and one of the, the most technically savvy. Uh, of course, they, they looked at, uh, they keep looking at technologies across the board uh, and technologies which can, which can help them promote the game, make a viewer experience even better, fan engagement better. And uh, they, they picked us out of many, you know, uh, different types of technology, not particularly in the area that we work in. And there was an instant uh, uh, realization, as they tell us, that they saw an immediate connect into what they're doing. Because if you look at it, I mean, tennis is extremely um, popular game. But then there's the, I mean, it generates a huge amount of money, revenue. But uh, the possibilities for tennis are even greater, right? It's not just about fan engagement getting better. It's about uh, a real economics for the game, right? And that that is a win for sports in general. So, I mean, that, they picked us up out of, uh, out of being a very relevant technology for them right now and in future. I mean, what's so interesting is that, of course, tennis players, like every sort of celebrity, they think about their image quite a bit. So it's the ultimate test in some ways for you guys to get the cadence and the tone of their voice just right. Because the closer you get to replicating them, the more intimate it feels in many ways. So is that something that your system works on and improves? Is it self-learning? Yeah, great question. I think as important as it is to get the voice and tonality of the original speaker, what our technology also does equally well is reaching out to the audiences, right? Because yes, it is incredible for a speaker to actually hear themselves in another language. It is amazing. I mean, uh, we can have you soon enough, uh, you know, broadcasting this show in Icelandic or any language you want. But at the same time... (laughs) Just think of the audience. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, you know, we we, uh, everybody on our team, we speak at least three languages and we understand that it's really important to the audience to actually receive it still very natively so the language element is equally important which we've uh, you know dedicatedly worked on to get dialects right to get nuances of those languages right so it really feels that it is Djokovic is just he is speaking Hindi really or he's speaking Spanish really or Mandarin really so there's it go, goes both ways. It does indeed. You know, we've mentioned there that the text being used in, uh, well, it was used at the Australian Open. Um, but have you already 
you know, managed to get it into other sporting events? Have you managed to get it used in other sort of famous incidents, Avnish? <laughs> Absolutely. I think, uh, so Georgie, uh, the tech is being used across uh, a number of different use cases uh, in sports, of course, in in entertainment, drama, uh, in education. Uh, so we are already working with uh, Major League Soccer out of U.S., uh, and uh, uh, the number of use cases is amazing. I mean, we are, we already started doing live streaming, uh, and uh, you can see a live game uh, in any language of your choice. Uh, very proud to actually have recently premiered uh, Naila Al-Khaja's uh, upcoming movie, Three, uh, where we have dubbed it in multiple languages, and it was premiered at the Red Sea Film Festival. Again, I'll uh, I'll say it's one of the best move, made movies uh, <laughs> that I've watched. Uh, it's a must-watch for for everybody in any language that you choose, by the way. And she's, <laughs> so, a, she's the Emirati uh, filmmaker, isn't she, director? A, she, yeah, she's the first Emirati female film director and producer. Amazing. Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the key elements of, of, of your software is, is that it, it doesn't just dub. It dubs in the same voice as the person who's speaking. How much of that person's voice do you need in order to recreate their speech? Act. Yeah, you'll be amazed. It's as low as three seconds. No. Um, and that's why we've found tremendous use cases in live streaming and cases where there's multiple speakers. Um, yeah, like you said, it's not for dubbing. It's more for performance transfer, as we call it, into any language. And so you could have a crowded room with commentators shouting at the top of their lungs and somebody coming in, in and out. Uh, it'll get all their voices mostly if it's at least three to four seconds. Um, I mean, it, it sounds absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. And it's so <laughs> lovely to hear about a UAE-based company doing uh, so well on the, on the global stage. So thank you to both of you for joining me in the studio. Thank you so much. Um, thank, you. thank you very much. <laughs> no. Uh, You've just been listening to the voices of Avnish Prakash and Ak Prakash, the founders of the UAE-based company Camb.ai. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Yep, you're listening to The Agenda here and we're taking a look at a local story now because the lives of UAE camels are being put at danger. And that is because they're eating plastic rubbish discarded in the desert. It is thought as many as 50% of wild camels or wild camel deaths, at least, could be caused by litter. But why are they eating it? Let's find out. I'm joined on the line by Dr. Asan Ulhaq Khan. He is a vet for the Dubai Camel Hospital. Sir, thank you so much for joining me on the line. Lovely to have you with us. Tell me, why are camels... Oh, thank you. Why are camels eating litter? Uh, this is in the desert when they are roaming around. Uh, you know, they are uh, looking around the shrubs and to eat, uh, f- to fill up their uh, hunger. And whatever they are finding in the desert, they will try to eat up uh, anything. And their uh, uh, eating pattern, and uh, they are like uh, caprophagic animals, so they are eating everything, whatever they find uh, in the desert. So they don't distinguish between sort of plant matter and rubbish? Uh, Yeah, that is, uh, they do distinguish. But, uh, you know, when they are having uh, more hunger cramps and uh, no food other uh, than that is available, then they go for these type of trash also to eat it up. So why is it such a problem for them? Does it not just pass through their systems? 
No, it's very difficult, especially the plastic things and uh, plastic bags. These are, uh, when they're going into their tummy, they are getting uh, mixed up with the food and the enzymes and they are making it a very solid mass inside. They are not dissolved by any enzymes and they're not been digested. So it remains in the tummy and they uh, join together and making it a, gathering the mass bigger and bigger. So it can cause a big trouble. It will not go into the intestines to pass through. Can you, it, it sounds awful, can you save the lives of camels that have, that have uh, got this problem? Do you, can you do surgery on them if you find them in time? Yes, uh, we do surgery, but that is, uh, you know, the, uh, these are the wild camels and uh, the, maybe owners are not that much uh, ready to go for the surgery. Most of the time they are not knowing the problem. They start uh, eating less and less and their tummy is full with this uh, trash. And uh, later on they got emaciated, losing the weight, and they die. And so it is diagnosis is only possible if they will come in time into the hospital and we do some uh, you know, diagnostic techniques to diagnose whether this mass is uh, how big and how easy to remove from their tummy. It, it's immensely distressing to think of these animals out in the desert dying in, in pain and, and, and dying from starvation. The figure is as many as 50% of wild camel deaths could be caused by litter. Would you agree with that statistic? I would not say that it's 50%, but uh, most of these camels, which are the wild camels, uh, are uh, getting uh, you know, these type of problems when they are not being taken care of well uh, and they are roaming around in the desert and they are finding the trash and they are eating these uh, trash uh, on their uh, way around and they are going back to their uh, places wherever they are belonging to and then uh, uh, they are not uh, having uh, the well, uh, you know, managed by the people so then they are going to be in trouble. Otherwise, the camels which are in stables and the racing camels, and they are been well taken care, and they are not uh, going into the desert for these trash. But uh, definitely not only the camels. I would uh, like to stress on the other species which are roaming around the desert. They can also take these plastics and they can go into the, uh, you know, there are so many uh, big areas uh, conservation areas has been made by the UAE governments in different areas. And if these, uh, you know, gazals and other animals which has been left in these uh, areas can also take this trash and uh, can go into the trouble. Sir, thank you so much for joining me on the line. I mean, the obvious message there is uh, that we shouldn't be dropping our litter. Uh, but lovely to have Dr. Arsen, uh, Dr. Arsen al Kirk Khan join us on the line there. A vet for the Dubai Camel Hospital. Thank you so much for your time. Hey there, welcome back to The Agenda. Georgia Tolly here with you. And there's a slight sort of countdown on if you're an Apple fan because the Vision Pro goes on sale tomorrow. Sadly, only in the United States, but we all know that that means there'll be one here within a few hours. You know, someone will buy one and bring it over. Um, The headset, it was first introduced back in June. Um, The idea is it's the 
it's going to sort of totally revolutionise spatial computing. Um, it includes these 3D cameras that uh, go on the front of your face. They look like ski goggles. They can capture videos. They then blend the real and the virtual world. They have hand and eye tracking. And they also have a sort of display on the front that shows a picture of the wearer's eyes. So, you know, it's not a sort of blank screen uh, as you walk around. People can see you as you can see them. And it does seem to have gone down very well so far with the testers in this Apple demo. You navigate using your eyes, hands, and voice. You simply look at something and tap your fingers together to select. What? <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing the photo right now. It's like right there. It's just this huge thing right here in front of us. I have to say, they look incredibly cool. I just wonder whether they're going to change the way we see life. Uh, if you think about it, there before the iPhone was released... You didn't see people walking around just staring at their phones constantly. And now we do. And it just seems normal. And there's sort of the whole TikTok generator. I mean, everything has changed since the release of the, the Apple iPhone. And I just wonder whether the Apple Vision Pro is going to create the same buzz, the same change. Um, worth mentioning, it costs an absolute fortune of 13,000 dirhams, give or take. Um, let's discuss it a little bit more. We've got two experts joining us in the studio, uh, one in the studio, one on Teams. In the studio, I have robotics expert Dr. Samir Kishore. He's the head and founder of the Virtual Reality Lab at Middlesex University, Dubai. Dr. Kishore, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Pleasure indeed. And joining us on Teams is Dr. Paul Tennant. He is an associate professor of mixed reality at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Sir, thank you for joining us. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Okay, let's start with a bit of an explanation because I'm not even sure I know what spatial computing is. Um, Dr. Paul, let me start with you. How does spatial computing differ from virtual or augmented reality, which of course everyone has sort of got vaguely familiar with already? So I don't think you're alone in being unfamiliar with the term spatial computing because Apple pretty much just made it up recently. Um, they don't really mean augmented reality precisely, um, although it's certainly a class of display uh, that, that is, is uh, similar to augmented reality. But really what they're talking about is laying out the sorts of computing tasks we do regularly around your space. So you're sitting, you're wearing your headset, you want to watch television. Well, why would you have to go to where your actual television is and put it on? You could just create a screen somewhere in your space and that's your television. Oh, you need to do a bit of work on your laptop? That's fine. We'll just create your laptop screen somewhere in your space. You could do a bit of work on it. You want to work with your browser? We'll create that somewhere in your space and you can work with it. You're going to have a, a FaceTime call with a bunch of people? That's fine. We'll just put them into your space with you. So they're they're thinking about your space as a a canvas on which to display stuff. Now, the way it becomes related to augmented reality, well, augmented reality essentially is about bringing the digital into the physical world. So um, the idea of augmented reality essentially is that um, you have, you're, you're present in the physical world. You can see the physical world around you. You can interact with it. Um, and you bring some digital content into that space. So that might be screens like Apple are doing with spatial computing, or it might be, 
Pokemons like Pokemon Go do. We're all familiar with that. You kind of walk around and uh, you see your, your Pokemons registered in the actual world. Or it could be any number of other uh, bits of digital concept being embedded into the world. Uh, I guess a, a relevant one would be um, uh, we can we can look at uh, robot arms in the in uh, virtual world. We can look at you know how they're going to move and consider how they're going to move in the future. It's one of the industrial applications of augmented reality. Consider how they're going to use before we actually install the multi-million dollar robot arm. Um, so yeah, spatial computing, bit of a surprise. Yes, it feels like a leap forward, um, Doctor Kishore. Is it is it very different to what the Oculus glasses offer us already, for example? Um, in terms of what it does, not really, in the sense that the concept isn't as novel as you would think, as Apple wants you to think it is. Uh, however, uh, in terms of the technology that is put into the headset, I think they've, uh, as Apple always does, they've taken a look at the, the minor details, the kind of user experience, the user interface, how do you sort of uh, navigate through the environment? I think those things they've really paid attention to. And I think that's where most likely, again, I haven't tried it yet, so I'm just basing this off of what I've read. Uh, that is where Apple might be different from what exists uh, already. So the Meta Quest already does pass through video, which is it shows you the real world through the cameras into the headset. But again, what they didn't think of was the... The material they've used plastic, for example. Apple's gone, you know, carbon fiber, magnesium, and all of these kinds of things. Uh, the the thing with the eyes as well. Again, it's a thing that Apple thought of just as a way to not isolate you from the rest of the people that might be in the room. So it's those little things that Apple has put a lot of energy on, and they make it very clear in their videos and promotional material as well that yes, it is a headset. It isn't well. They don't say it directly, but they imply it that it's not a brand new thing that has been created for the first time ever, but the way they have done it is very Apple of them. Is that um, is that the same sort of scenario as there was with the iPhone? Pretty much, right? I mean, we, we had smartphones before that as well, but the way I remember the keynote uh, back when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone, and again, he was talking about how you have an MP3 player like an iPod, a, a browse a web browser and a communicator kind of thing all rolled into one device and they were again they were proud of the way that they had kind of changed the way that we thought of smartphones back then to what we think of smartphones now and a, as we saw once the iPhone was out many other companies then tried to emulate the the little things the human you know computer whatever interface and the interaction with the device in a way that Apple had done it so that we probably have that to look forward to with the Meta Quest 4 or the Microsoft HoloLens 3 or the Magic Leap, that they might now see how well the eyes are received or that whole persona thing that Apple talks about is received. And then, I guess, try to get some inspiration from it. It's very interesting how um, it's it's sort of it's hard to define the line between clever marketing and the realities that when you bring in these more streamlined user interface qualities, that that is actually what takes, a, a, you know, what was just a simple tool to something that people literally cannot put down. Yeah. And I think that's what's going to be so interesting about these Vision Pros is that, you know, is there going to be a future where everyone is just wearing one all the time? And that just seems 
normal, a bit like people wearing goggles on a ski slope. We're going to ask that in the next few minutes. That's just one of the questions I'm going to get into with my two uh, experts, my two virtual reality experts. We're in the middle of chatting to Dr. Paul Tennant and Dr. Samir Kishore. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the show. We are discussing Apple's Vision Pro on the program today. It goes on sale tomorrow in the United States. Uh, The general gist is that it's a sort of ski goggle type headset and it's aiming to move spatial computing, as they're calling it, um, beyond sort of just mixed reality um, into something even cooler. And certainly the first reviews of Apple's Vision Pro headset talk of a big leap forward. Uh, The tech reviewers are very enthused, but there's no hiding the fact it costs an absolute fortune, 13,000 dirhams. So do we think the device will change the way we live and work in much the way the iPhone did back in 2007. Uh, we are discussing that with two experts, robotics expert uh, Dr. Samir Kishore. He's head and founder of the Virtual Reality Lab at Middlesex University, Dubai. He's joined us in the studio. And we've also got Dr. Paul Tennant, who's an associate professor in the Mixed Reality Laboratory at University of Nottingham in the UK. Now, Dr. Tennant, I want to ask you whether you, like many of the reviewers, see this as a transitional moment. Do you think the Apple Vision Pro is going to change the face of computing? I think it's a really interesting one because I don't think it is a technically transitional device. I think there's a lot of nice equipment in it uh, and it's a premiumized VR headset, but it's a bit different to when the iPhone came out. Yeah, there were a couple of smartphones around at the time, but the iPhone was a very revolutionary product. And this kind of isn't. It's got some interesting equipment in it. The, the um, 3D video capture uh, and the spatial videos that they're offering are really nice, but that's pretty much it for a unique selling point. Um, I think Apple have come quite late to the party, but that being said, the difference, I think, is that this is an Apple product. And, you know, I, I'm not necessarily an Apple fanboy, but Apple have an uncanny ability to tell the public that this is a thing that they should have and the public have an uncanny desire to listen to them so apple are a bit late to the party with vr i mean we've had vr since 1962 and we've had kind of modern vr since 2010 um they're not doing anything revolutionary this time but they are premiumizing the product and that's quite exciting apple are gambling that You'd be willing to wear a heavier VR headset if it's made of glass and metal compared to Meta's plasticky one. In the, you know, the counter argument, plasticky one, a bit more comfortable to wear in your face for a long period of time. I have to say, it does but look incredibly cool, doesn't it? It does. It looks great. Apple are phenomenal at producing products which look like a thing you want to have. You know, the the view the view of your eyes is kind of pointless, but it looks brilliant. It does, I have to say. Um, I mean, Dr. Kishore, what potential uses do you think people will have for the tech? You know, apart from it looking awesome, you know, who is Apple trying to appeal for, to and, and for what purpose? Yeah, I think that's, that's, again, one of the things that sort of differentiates Apple from the rest of the headsets in the market, where at least from the promotional material that I've seen so far, they really haven't spoken about gaming at all. The, the Meta Quest series, for example, have 
been all about kind of immersing you in a virtual environment where you completely lose track of reality because you're in a fantastic place and, you know, having fun playing games or whatever for hours. Apple hasn't focused on the gaming aspect much. Apple doesn't even look like they're trying to target, you know, like you said, teenagers as much as they're trying to show it as a product that professionals use, that adults use, mostly for productivity, for connectivity, and for, you know, capturing memories as well. So it's it's more of a personal slash productivity device rather than a gaming device. So where do you think this tech is going to evolve to? Because if Apple is, you know, even if they haven't invented something that, that's sort of brand new, do you think that this is nevertheless, could nevertheless be a, a step forward, Dr. Kishore? And I'll ask, I'm going to ask you this as well, Dr. Tennant. Absolutely. Again, uh it is. It might not have been, you know, uh, the same level of, uh, let's say, inventiveness or novelty as the iPhone was as compared to the smartphones. I agree with that point. Uh, one thing that Apple does really well is the marketing, right? So they have uh, kind of pushed it as a device that is going to revolutionize the way sort of we, we interact with this kind of computing. And uh, again, you have two academics here, so we're going to not really, <laughs> you know, focus as much on the marketing uh, aspect of it. We're, we're going to look at the technical aspect of it. However, again, with the first generation, we might not see as much of a shift. But as we get the Vision Pro 2, that's going to cost hopefully 10,000 dirhams instead of 13,000 dirhams, uh, is going to be more powerful. And they would have figured out by then the other use cases for it as well. So that's... I see it becoming more, let's say, uh, ubiquitous. But the use cases, again, we have to see as we go along with it. Dr. Tennant, how long before you look up in one of your lectures, do you think, and discover that everyone in the room is wearing one of these things? I've not seen everyone in the room wearing one, but I have seen students in my lectures wearing virtual reality headsets. So I don't think we're terribly far away. And it's kind of interesting. Apple, when they introduced the Apple Watch, there were smartwatches around. And nobody really saw the point in them at the time. You know, it's a bit of health tracking, it's a bit of kind of fitness tracking, but very few people. It was very much an enthusiast market. Apple introduced it, and then suddenly, you know, if you look around, a huge number of people are wearing Apple Watches. So I think we might see the same thing happen again here. Loads of people who didn't see the point of VR, I don't do virtual reality, it makes me sick, I have no interest, are suddenly going to pick up these these Vision Pro headsets. I think we're going to start seeing an awful lot more. Of course, they're eye-wateringly expensive. And of course, that price is going to come down. Or is it? You know, the iPhone is still basically the same price it used to be, if you account for inflation. There's always going to be this kind of premium one. Yeah, people are going to buy this premium Apple product. And that, I think, is going to be really, really good for the virtual reality and the mixed reality research, right? Because more market penetration means more stuff is going to get out there. More VR companies are going to keep doing stuff. The, the, the innovators like Vario in Finland who are doing unbelievable things with virtual reality, really pushing the technology forward. And their, their headsets are even more expensive than Apple's, but they're pushing the tech forward. And Apple will draw on those innovations. And Meta will continue to push the kind of gaming side forward. Uh, and social VR, because that's Meta's big thing. Um, they'll continue to push that forward and Apple will draw on those innovations and Apple will push this kind of consumer uh, non-gaming productivity VR experience or mixed reality experience, spatial computing experience, I suppose they're calling it. They'll push that forward and together, hopefully, we're going to see mixed reality becoming more ubiquitous and what we're all waiting for really is a, a nice, very, very light headset. You know, when I, when my actual glasses will do the job, I will be a very happy man.
Yes, that's the thing. At the moment, it does just look like you're, you know, you're, you're about to go skiing, frankly. Um, and, I, and I have to say, as a parent, I really worry about that, the sort of closing off element of, of a VR headset. Um, I don't think I'd want one in my house. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get the choice, <laughs> but I don't think I'd want one. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Really fascinating conversation there about whether or not the Apple Vision Pro is going to be a watershed or transitional moment. Uh, we've been hearing the voice of just then Dr. Paul Tennant. Associate Professor uh, at the University of Nottingham in the UK and uh, also robotics expert Dr Samir Kishore from Middlesex University, Dubai. Thank you very much indeed, uh, both of you, for your time. It's been a great pleasure to have you on the radio. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show and it is sports time. Let's find out the latest from both on and off the pitch or field or swimming pool or court. Chris McCarty has sent through this report. Well, good morning, Georgia. Happy Thursday, penultimate day of the working week. Not that I'm counting. And well, let's start before we look ahead to what's upcoming over the course of the next 24 hours. Let's look back on what we witnessed last night. Another busy night of Premier League action. And well, there's no finer starting point, I guess, than the big one. At Anfield, the dress rehearsal for the EFL Cup final a little later this month at Wembley. It saw Liverpool taking on Chelsea. Of course, Liverpool starting the night top of the league. Chelsea, a little bit of upturn of form in recent weeks but they are languishing in mid-table and it was men against boys in truth Liverpool winning 4-1 on the night an incredible performance four different goal scorers Chelsea simply not at the races Liverpool reaffirming their spot at the top of the table they've stretched that lead once again to five points and I tell you what they're going to take some stopping all eyes now on the Emirates Stadium on Sunday Liverpool visit Arsenal yes the top three Liverpool top, Arsenal down in third that should be an absolute cracker but yeah Liverpool minus of course Mohamed Salah minus Trent Alexander-Arnold he was back on the bench minus Andy Robertson he too on at the bench and well the hero of the hour Connor Bradley just 20 years of age was on loan at Bolton Wanderers in League 1 last season a goal and two assists for the 20 year old another star is born out of that famous Liverpool Youth Academy he was excellent Liverpool on the night, I hate to say it they were excellent to Liverpool and I said this on the show last night to Robbie, if Liverpool win at the Emirates on Sunday, I make them favourites to go on and clinch a second Premier League title the other matches last night were Manchester City they ran out 3-1 winners at home to Burnley Julian Alvarez with a couple of goals in that when Erling Haaland started the night on the bench, he's back fit, that is a big big plus for Man City heading in to this business end of the season. As for the final match last night, Tottenham Hotspur coming back from a goal down to beat Brentford by three goals to do another humdinger of a match at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Spurs very much still in the hunt for that top four finish. A little later on this evening, you've got another couple of matches. The big one, quarter past midnight, Wolves taking on Manchester United, that one from Molyneux. And then in terms of what you've got to look forward to tomorrow, well, all eyes will be over in India. The second test match, India versus England. Of course, England with a 1-0 lead in that five-match series after that thrilling victory, one of the all-time great victories in test cricket for England. They start their quest to take a 2-0 lead tomorrow morning. That one off at 8am. So that gets you bang up to date, Georgia. Looking forward to catching up with you with the final time tomorrow.
Thank you very much indeed, Mr. McCarty. Uh, make sure you don't miss him. Robbie also null at 4pm this afternoon, 5pm this afternoon, I should say. It is your drive time show off script on air uh, all from 5 all the way through until 8. And in fact, we're going to get a little slice of Sonal Rapani in the next few minutes as well. She has another show that's broadcast at the weekend. It's called The Reboot. It's your go-to show for tech and futurism. She has been looking into a very interesting topic indeed, and I couldn't help but fancy stealing it for the agenda. We're going to talk about mining asteroids next with Sonal. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Okay, it's just coming up to 11.49. Georgia Tolly here on The Agenda. And it's fair to say that uh, we love a space story on the agenda. Uh, We're also quite partial to a tech story, you might have noticed. So it's fantastic to be joined in the studio. My Sonal Rapani, presenter extraordinaire of the weekend show, The Reboat, much loved, obviously, from Offscript, and now on the agenda. It's always great to be here, Georgia. Yeah, it's it's been, in fact, it's been a little while. It's nice to it nice to catch has. up. I don't know how that's happened. You did take a you took a, a a small break from the reboot, didn't you? And then came back with version two point zero. Yes, exactly. We had a little summer hiatus, yeah. and we brought it back. And yeah, really excited about some of the topics that we've been covering. So on the show this week, we were talking about and. How much do you know about asteroid mining? And this is exactly what it sounds like: the idea that we're going to head out into space. And because we have exhausted the resources here on Earth or because the way that we mine here on Earth isn't sustainable from both a social point of view and an environmental point of view, we're just going to grab some asteroids. Yeah. Take the materials, bring them to use here on Earth. It sounds a bit nutty, doesn't it? It sounds a bit like the plot of that movie that has the Aerosmith song, Don't Want to Miss a Thing. And if I had it, which gets way too much airtime on off script. I love Armageddon. (laughs) I love films where animals eat humans and I love space movies that are totally unrealistic. Animals that eat humans. So between Jaws, The Revenant, Meg, 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 one and two. Oh, stop. Every single Jurassic Park. In the latest Jurassic Park, you actually see the human go into the jaws and then they, then they like go for the inside shot. It's, I tell you, <laughs> there's nothing better. Yeah. There's you know what? Better. There is a certain fascination with that. We've done a lot of that on Off Script as well. Hippo eats man, spits him out a couple times. Choose them up. Know. Yeah, exactly. We've got all Lo- sorts of things I like, like it. that. I like where crocodiles, they lodge humans oh. under this, under so that they, because their teeth aren't quite sharp. And anyway. This is getting quite grim, Georgia. Yeah, sorry. Let's okay. move on to <laughs> okay. I'm going to take us back to space, all yeah. right? Um, but the reason we were talking, thinking about this topic is because NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission, which happened relatively recently, was the first time that the U.S. decided to actually attempt to return samples from an asteroid to Earth. And this is an organization with the resources of NASA, okay? And this cost about $800 million, it's estimated at. So almost reaching up to a billion dollars to do this mission to return hundreds of grams of material. So not even a kilogram. We don't know exactly how much. I've seen different estimates ranging from 200 to 400 grams of material. Not very much for... $800 million. So it begs the question, how on earth are we planning to bring materials from space and actually make this cost effective? Why are different private companies looking at this? And you might find this statement from the famed astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson a little bit surprising considering that. The first trillionaire you'll ever be is the person who mines asteroids for their natural resources. So the idea is that for whoever figures it out, there's a big payday at the end of it. You know, it's it's quite an ambitious 
aim to say the least. But at the same time, if you've got this, you could be the first ever trillionaire. Because because no one's going to care about you mining an asteroid, right? No one's going to go, but what about the worms or the you know the bats or the you know the the, the natural resources because it's just a rock in space exactly that's all it is so as long as you can do it and you're not creating a huge environmental impact or you're not impacting people and exploiting people in order to do the work in theory if we could figure it out and make it cost effective it could be a lot better than what we currently do now difficult though because asteroids if you think about it travel at 15 to 20 kilometers per second Oh, hang on a sec. They're moving. They're mo- of course. Asteroids are moving. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. 15 to 20 kilometers per second, not just moving. They're hurtling. So you're t- talking about hurtling taking... Hurtling is such a good word. It is, isn't it? You're thinking about taking these minerals from this rock, hurtling through space, returning them you know, to Earth in a way that makes any kind of economic sense. It's hard to imagine that we could actually do this. And yet there have been companies as early as the 2010s with a lot of backing from, you know, uh, the Google execs to um, filmmakers, James Cameron, that that have failed. Now we're in our second iteration, second gen of asteroid mining firms that have cropped up. So I actually talked to one called Astroforge. Now they recently acquired $13 million in seed funding. I caught up with their co-founder and CEO, Matthew Golich. And I asked him kind of how he even came to this. He said he was working in an e-mobility company, Bird. You know, they do the e-scooters and the rentals. I think they went bust recently. They did go bust. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, during during the COVID period, they were facing a real shortage of platinum group metals, platinum, palladium, iridium, a couple others as well. The sorts of materials that you need for batteries and other functions that are in short supply here on Earth. And they realized they're in abundance on metallic asteroids. So how on Earth, though, could it be efficient to send a rocket to space refine in space and then bring it back a sizable payload and all of that on a startup budget. We have a, a refinery that we use to extract the platinum group metals out of these metallic asteroids and we bring it back to Earth. Now, you asked the question, or why does it cost so much for some of these NASA missions? Please keep in mind that NASA is a very different organization. They are going after the science uh, impact. They build very large missions, very secure, very highly reliable missions um, that can go out and do this. We're not using any, you know, we're not wrapping our samples in scientific instruments to protect them. We are going out, refining the asteroid and bringing back what's valuable to us. And that's it. So he said, when you get rid of the scientific overheads and the need for reliability, it can actually be a lot more affordable than we think. But still, if you don't have the large resources of a large government or private billionaires, you're basically on a startup budget. How do you do this? He said the inspiration was Elon Musk. Everyone's inspiration. (laughs) My inspiration is Elon Musk. (laughs) He said he looked at rocket launches and said, why is this so expensive? He stripped it back to its essentials, came up with the new model that is SpaceX. And he says that's basically what they're trying to do. We essentially did the same thing with deep space craft. We looked at missions like OSIRIS-REx and the Psyche mission and said, why does this cost so much? Why does it have to be so big? Why does it have to have these instruments? Why does it have to go through testing? And we think they're an order of magnitude off. We can build it much, much cheaper to go do. Uh, our first mission that will go to an asteroid, which is launching later this year. So this is fully paid for. Uh, we fully built our spacecraft. It's on a, a SpaceX Falcon 9 that will be owned by a company called Intuitive Machines. It's on their second launch. Um, we'll be going to deep space. And that craft is um, is much less than $10 million is what I'll say on price. Does that surprise you? $10 million to spend a spacecraft to do a mission. I $10 don't, million. I don't like the fact that they haven't tested it, though. 
You yeah. know, doesn't that mean that it's coming back loaded with precious metals? Is it just going to explode as it comes back? Or? Now, to be clear, with this particular mission, it's just a scouting mission. Okay. So it is scheduled for Q2 of this year. It's not a mining mission. They're going to be hitching a ride with an existing lunar mission, as he said. Then their spacecraft is going to peel off and head to an asteroid target. And it's going to take pictures. It's going to get information about the metal composition, basically find out, is this target, is this particular asteroid worth it? Is it what we're going to go for first? And Matt says they have evidence to suggest it could be, listen to this, 100,000 times better than any ore source on Earth. Wow. A hundred thousand times better. No wonder so they're, they're spending see if they're the, correct. Yeah, 10 million quid doesn't actually, I mean, obviously, dollars rather. I mean, obviously, that's a lot to me. And yeah. thank you. Yes, please, if you'd like to give it to me rather than send a spaceship up bring it on but not much for a space mission yeah exactly and i you know we didn't get into this so i'm surmising a bit here but the way i see it is you know it's seed funding that they've gotten if they succeed and they do this well great if it's not robust enough because they haven't tested enough it's not it's not their money is it (laughs) well also whenever space rockets blow up they always go oh but no we've made great progress and and it's all in the secret of science and space is hard and i'm like yeah but it blew up he's like but we learned so much in the blowing up process you're like okay yeah well this is fair enough i can't argue with you i know nothing (laughs) i think you need to be willing to have a couple of those to get there eventually so i guess it's just about you know if they're able he's of course very um uh, p- positive about this. Bullish, yeah, even. Bullish. Bullish is the right word. Uh, so, you know, I, I take it all with a pinch of salt, to be honest. But they are going to do the scouting mission. It's scheduled for this year. So we will wait to see uh, what happens. And assuming they do manage to make some progress, how much does he think they can make from this sort of thing? Now, okay. coming back, we plan on bringing back a thousand kilograms per mission of the platinum group metal. So this is exactly one metric ton of material. It's not something that's going to destroy economies or anything like that. This is valued about $70 million, give or take, depending on the spot price um, of what we would bring back. We're not going to destroy economies. <laughs> so if they bring back enough, it could destroy an economy. I mean, that's the suggestion. I there. suppose as with any technology, if you got good enough at this... And you brought and, back enough of it. You know that China has most of the special metals that, that, we, that, that, that the rest of the world needs. Yeah. So maybe that's what he means by bring down an economy. Yeah. I mean, like he said, they're not doing it just yet with one mission. But if you manage to scale something like this and it is efficient and it's not harming anybody, then, yeah, Why you could, you you could definitely upset the current status quo, that's fair to say. He said in terms of the mining missions, as I've, as I've said, the one this year is just a scouting mission to get some information. They're hoping for their first mining mission. Again, I think this is ambitious to bring some samples back by the end of before the end of the decade. So still a few years away and yet something we're going to watch because, of course, if it does happen, if somehow they do succeed with this, it is going to be absolutely have a tremendous impact. It really is. I mean, it's such a fascinating topic. And if people want to hear more about it, where can they hear more from you on this topic? We've always got the reboot on every other Sunday. That's starting at 10 a.m. So tune in. Fantastic. Sonal Rapani there with your reboot program and also, of course, uh, presenter of Offscript. So back this afternoon at five. five Thank you very much indeed, Sonal Rapani. Thanks Pleasure. for having me in. See ya. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.